Hello there, my fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Ozzy, his royal fuzziness, is in the studio with me. Fingers crossed he behaves. This is episode 31 of season two. In today's podcast, I'm having a roundtable discussion with the very talented authors of the Moonlight and Misadventures Anthology. So may I introduce Judy Penz Schluck, Susan Daly, Elizabeth Elwood, M. H. Callway, Susan Jane Wright, and K. L. Abramson. Authors, ladies, Ozzy and I welcome you to the dressing room. It's great to be here. Thank you. <laughs> good, good. So let's start with Judy, Judy Penzschalak. You are an Amazon international best-selling author, a prolific author. You were on my you were on my podcast late last year, and we talked about your novel Where There's a Will. Your own press, Superior Shores Press, is publishing this anthology. And can you tell us what was that what-if moment that brought this anthology to publication? You know, was it, were you sipping wine in a cabin, um, a warm fireplace, your dog Gibbs curled at your feet? Just what, what made you think, hey... Well, this is my third anthology, so I obviously a uh, love uh, hard work for no pay. <laughs> and, uh, but actually, yeah, it did come up at our our cat. We, they call them camps in northern Ontario, and southern Ontario they're called cottages. I don't know what they're called out west, but at our camp on Lake Superior, and um, you know. The sunsets there are spectacular. Uh, they're just, they're just, you know, they're over the water. They're just endless, gorgeous. But once the sun goes down, it's it's a bit creepy, right? I mean, there are bears and coyotes and wolves, and I have to take my dog out for his last pee. And it's uh, and I'm always like terrified that something's going to come out of the woods. I mean, I've got lights, but they don't really cover like it's a big area. So I'm always a bit nervous. So I, you know, I'm always looking for a theme. I love themes. I think it's easier for writers if they have a theme and it's better for the collection if it's got a cohesive theme. Um, and so, you know, one night I thought moonlight and murder is what I originally thought. But then I, I thought, well, I don't want every, every story doesn't have to have a murder in it. I mean, there are lots of crimes that don't have murders. Um, so then I was thinking, well, you know, and I love alliteration, you know, heartbreaks and half-truths. I'm big on the alliteration. So um, anyway, so Moonlight and this adventure, I just thought that was a good, a good theme that could cover a lot of different um, things. And so when I did the call out, I, I said, as long as you sort of keep to the theme and no werewolves. So I really, I just don't get werewolves at all. I don't understand that type of writings so I still got some werewolves but you know I just didn't even read them really I just oh there's a werewolf gone <laughs> it's interesting yeah I have a few which it's just like no I'm sorry I can't get into this I just right. I, you know yeah and I swear I'm probably the only one who hasn't watched Game of Thrones just I haven't watched it I haven't either 
Oh, there we go. No interest in it whatsoever. None, zero, less than zero. And I haven't read it or seen any of the Harry Potters either. Sorry. (laughs) So with, and I'm going to give everyone a heads up. The neighbor across the street, they have been jackhammering the driveway. And I think they have just showed up to do more um, work on their driveway. So hopefully, okay. Now, with this anthology, so we have the individual stories. And I found they flowed so nicely together. Um, They are, and I looked it up, they are like notes in a phrase of music, okay? And to tap into the moonlight theme, when I read the stories of these authors, I thought of Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune. Like it was just, it was very romantic. Like if if you're gonna have a soundtrack, okay? (laughs) It's very romantic. Um, I was wondering how many story entries did you receive? And um, like, and how do you decide? Like, did you read some and thought, definitely, this is this is going in. Um, and w- so what's the next step? So, okay, so I'm kind of asking you a couple multiple of questions here. So if, did you have like definite stories and then you decided, okay, how do I build around almost like the anchor stories? So to answer the first question, there were, um, I received 93 submissions and um, they came from uh, 26 U.S. states, four Canadian provinces, Europe, Australia, and the U.K. So there was a real mix. Um, And so to answer your question, how did, how do I pick them? Well, I I start with this, I have a spreadsheet. So as they come in, I log the person's name, their pseudonym. Um, the story name, the word count, and that's basically all. And that's basically all I do initially. And then once a week, I would pick, like, say, a Saturday or Sunday to read whatever stories came in that week. You know, because I do other things besides the anthology. I'm writing my own books, right? So yeah. something somehow you have to have a schedule, or you just get nothing done. And I'm, if nothing, if not super organized individual, <laughs> attested to by now seeing the stuff that I do. Um, so some stories, the minute I read them, I go, I know that they're a definite yes. So I actually have a column, which is yes, no, maybe, right? So for instance, the very first story that I read and said, this is a definite was Elizabeth's um, ill met by moonlight, my fair Miss Dolness. I loved the story. It was so authentic. Um, it just was different than anything that I'd read in such a long time. And I could tell that, you know, even without reading her bio, that this was a person that had actually done this. She was a drama teacher, you know, because it was just everything about it was just so authentic. And I just loved it. So that one was a definite yes from the get go. Um, so so was Susan's. I mean, I'm a fan of Susan's writing. Um, I, she's been in all three anthologies, the only author that's been in all three anthologies. And, um, you know, I'm never disappointed with anything I read of hers. And I liked it because, again, it was different and fun and a little bit whimsical. And, um, you know, so I, I that those two, the minute I read them, I went, yes, yes, this is it. Um, there, you know, some sometimes... Uh, because I know a lot of the authors either personally or just gotten to know them through virtual. Um, 
sometimes a story, I really like a story, but I'm not sure if I like it because I know the author or because I really like it. And so those become a maybe for me. And I, so I put those in to think, okay, and why am I, why am I responding to this? Is it definite because it grabbed me from the get-go or is it because I know the author and I don't want to let them down or I don't want to hurt their feelings or whatever. Right. Um, and then there's the definite no's, you know, like, like I say, I like to keep the language pretty clean. I don't mind the odd, you know, hell or whatever, but, um, and you know, some were just laden with profanity. So, you know, if you can't follow the guidelines while you're out, right. If they don't have, they don't follow the theme, they were out. Um, there was one that was just so bizarre that I only read the first page and I felt like I needed to have a shower. It was just so really creepy. And, <laughs> and, uh, and the guy like kept, like he really kept kind of stalking me in a way. So he was a little bit odd, right? So you just never know the kind of people you're going to get. Um, but anyway, so, so basically at the end of reading all the stories, even the ones, first I reread the one, so the submission's over. So then I, I've got my, my list of 93 stories. And out of those 93, there was maybe five that were definite yeses, right? Um, so if you, if you got to the five, you, that was pretty good, right? Um, and then the rest were maybe. So, um, so the, those, those ones that were fives, that there were the definites, I reread them again just to make sure that now that I've read 93 stories, I still thought they were worthy. And all five of them, I, yes, I liked them good. They were another one was John Floyd's. So I just loved his story. Um, and Joseph Walker's loved his story. Um, <laughs> so those ones were like a definite. And then I went to my maybes and I reread all the maybes and made little comments, uh, you know, just to remind me uh, of what they were about. Like, so, so for Elizabeth's, I would just put, you know, drama teacher or something, Susan's, you know, Prince Philip, you know, whatever. So, so I have a room, you know, after a while, they all start blending in, right? Yeah. Um, so then from that point, uh, then, I, then I have to be a little harsher, right? So I try to cut about 50%. So the first go around, I try to cut 50%. And then from there, I try to cut another 50% of those people until I ended up with about 35 stories. And then with those 35, I have to call that down to 19 because of course I put in my own story. Yeah. So that I then um, have a, um, a beta reader and I send them to her and say, okay, here's the 35 stories. Tell me which ones you like, and then I'll compare and, and rate them one to five and I'll compare them to mine. And uh, you know, and she, she actually probably picked a couple that I might not have picked, but when she made her comments, I thought, yes, I think she's right. I think they, you know, so, I mean, they were in the strong maybes anyways, cause they were on the, the, the long list. Right. Yeah. And then the, the last, you know, then you finally get to the end, right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, how you, that's how you pick the stories. And then you have to decide how to order the stories. Yeah. And so then I take my spreadsheet and I rearrange it. Can you tell I used to be an account in my past life? <laughs> and I rearrange my spreadsheet by word count so that I, because you can't have like three stories in a row that are 5,000 words. And then, I, you know, like you want to break it up. So the reader's got a long, a short, and a medium, long, short, medium. So, you know, it's, it's easy for the reader to kind of take a break. <clears throat> so there's a lot that goes into it. And then, you can't have two dark stories in a row. You know, you want a dark one and maybe a lighter one um, because after somebody's read something dark, they want something that's a little less intense maybe. <clears throat> and even the lead in. So for instance, my story is quite short. And uh, so I know, knew that I wanted something longer and 
uh, darker than mine, which has a bit of humor in it. And Madeline's story, uh, I thought, was the perfect lead into my story. So like from the beginning, once I selected Madeline's story, I thought this is the story that's going to go before my story because it it's a good leading, so, so different from my story in every way possible. I and mean, it's, it's got humor, but it's just, it's a really, it's got a social message, it's got a lot going, going for it, right? So I really wanted her story to lead into my little shorter story. Yeah. So that's, you know, so I think that's pretty much, you know, like I said, it's lots of, you know, it, it takes me about a full day to determine the order of the stories. <clears throat> and the one thing, the one other thing I wanna say is, Sometimes a really great story gets rejected. And that did happen this time where I had two stories with an identical premise, killing their boss. Mm. You can't have two stories and 20 stories, two, two killing the bosses. And they were almost the same word, like everything, right? It was really, so finally, I just, I, I said to my, my beta reader, I said, you got to tell me, like, you got to pick one. And she she said, this is the one I prefer. And I was like, okay. I, I was terrible. Like, I told the writer, this is such a great story. Like, here's where you need to submit it because it's so good, right? <clears throat> it just, I just couldn't have two stories with the identical premise in such a short collection. So sometimes a really great story just doesn't make it just because of something like that. It, that makes sense. It makes sense. And yeah. just because there was a definite flow. And I, I don't mean down, but there was a rhythm to the, reading them you know so that's well that's the goal yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. it looks seamless but it's a a lot of it's a lot of work right because yeah. you're and then because you're like okay like that one was kind of funny well we want one that's serious but not too serious but you know so it just yeah, yeah. yeah. anyway it I was lucky I worked with like the some of the ones I turned down were really really good so it's you know the ones that made it were exceptional in my opinion yeah, they are. They are. And also really want to get into these. Um, so I have individual questions for each author and I open up the, I open up some questions for everyone. So let's start with Susan Daly. Hi, Susan. Joanna, thanks for having us all here today. This is going to be fun. Good. Yeah. So, so our listeners know Susan Daly writes short crime fiction for fun, fame, and fortune, and to take a stand for social justice. Her stories have appeared in many anthologies, including Mystery Most Theatrical, The Best Laid Plans, and Heartbreaks and Half-Truths. A Death at the Parsonage won the 2017 Arthur Ellis Award for Best Short Story from the Crime Writers of Canada. She lives in Toronto and is a member of the Crime Writers in Canada and Sisters in Crime National, Toronto. And I have to, I got to ask this now, and Guppy Branches. I, I, what are Guppy Branches? Someone please. Oh, no, no, sorry. There, there are three branches. Okay. Guppy being one of them. The Guppies used to be known as the Great Unpublished, but now it's... it's known as Guppies. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Susan, your story, My Night with the Duke of Edinburgh. How did you come up with that story idea? Did two ideas merge? Have you seen Queen Elizabeth and the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip? Like, how did, how did that come about? Well, you're right about two ideas merging. The story was inspired by something I heard on CBC about a pair of upper-class 
shall I say, twits, who in 1960 decided to kidnap Princess Margaret's new husband, Anthony Armstrong Jones. Remember him? Yeah. Yes. No, he's not that memorable. From uh, from Madame Tussauds, not the real one, the the wax figure. So this was a keeper I thought I could really run with. But I wanted a better man than Tony and a Canadian setting. I thought for a bit about one of the two Justins, you know, Justin Bieber, Justin Trudeau. But then I hit upon Prince Philip on the Royal Tour of Canada in 1951. So research was easy because the National Film Board has this excellent documentary about the event and you can watch it if you just have to search online. And in the Toronto Star, their online archives, I found a real treasure trove of coverage to draw from. So I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. And you asked, have I seen them? Well, yes, of course, like my protagonist, I was always thrilled over the years to stand by the road and enjoy a good Royal drive-by. And I have to add, this is a bit surreal to have recently attended via television, the funeral of my title character. Right, right, very true, yeah. And um, I've seen Queen Elizabeth. It was, I was 18, it was at, okay, NDSS High School, and she was in BC, and she was going up, at that time it was called Malaspina College. And I just happened to be, you know, they brought all of the high school students out onto the road. I happened to be on the right, the right side of the road and her car went past. She did this. And I thought, that's her. You know, so that that's about as close I've seen her, you know, but yeah, it's special. It, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So this story takes place in 1951 and it works. Okay. Because of that time frame. I mean, it. our time now, we have cell phones. Everyone's taking videos of anything that's going on in their cell phone, okay? The humor, I had definite laughing out loud moments, all right? S- especially when Kathy meets up with the Duke of Edinburgh, okay? So I asked this question with my last roundtable discussion And I was wondering, have you thought of taking this short story with its humor and expanding it into a novel? Okay, well, first, I just want to add that in 1951, a royal tour was a huge, huge event, like not like today or even later in the 20th century when they were zipping back and forth across the Atlantic all the time. Royal tours were really rare and a real treat. And the Canadian public was thrilled to have a glimpse of this beautiful young couple. Um, and you also mentioned the security. Well, uh, I do mention in the story that the, the, the RCMP and the police are kind of have a list of, of subversives that they have to keep an eye out for in 1951, but that's probably about as far as it goes. Um, but as for, as you asked about you know, expanding it, as for a novel, my short stories are pretty tightly structured. And I like the challenge of pulling it all together in under 5,000 words. Wow. Although now that you mention it, there's one or two characters from other stories that kind of are calling out to me for more attention. So it might happen. Good, good. All right. So we're going to move from Susan Daly to Susan Jane Wright. Welcome to the dressing room. Thank you very much, Joanna. I'm I'm delighted to be here with uh, my fellow Moonlighters and Judy who brought us all together. And the other thing that's cool is that I'm on your podcast. And of course, as some people know, we're related. You're my baby sister. (laughs) 
he always likes trying to get that in. (laughs) Well, congratulations, Susan. This is your first publication? Yes, it is. Yeah, I I normally, well, I come from a background in uh, of law and business. And so I I tend to write nonfiction. And so this was my first actual published piece of fiction. And it's, it's a scary thing, because when you're writing nonfiction, you're writing about facts, and people will either agree or disagree with your opinion. But when you're writing fiction, you're putting it out there, and people will just look at it and say, you know, they like it or they don't. So I'm really pleased and delighted to be here. Good. So our listeners know, Susan Jane Wright was a lawyer and an executive in the energy section before she became a writer. Her nonfiction has appeared in Alberta Views and other newspapers. She's a regular guest on TV and radio talk shows and podcasts. And she has received a PIA, Public Interest Award, and the Canadian Law Blog Award for her legal blog, Susan on the Soapbox. A career highlight was interviewing Beverly McLaughlin, our former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court for WordFest. Wow, that must have been that, that must have been quite an event. It, it it blew me away. She was so um, open and generous with her time. And just and she, we were talking uh, in the story. We were talking about her memoir, actually, in the interview. But beforehand, in the green room, I got to sit there in the green room with her. We were talking about her her fiction book, Full Disclosure. And I just thought she's a remarkable woman. Yeah, good. I don't have a green room. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in the new house. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Susan Jane, your story is Madeline in the Moonlight. Mm-hmm. I am an illustrator. So naturally, I was drawn to the deceased, the mother being an artist. Your descriptions about the paintings are lovely. And what I was wondering, what was the spark to weave this mystery around paintings, paintings, and why a Julian Schnabel painting? I had to look that up. What, so yeah, <laughs> so well, the, the I am really drawn to creative people and and people who can create magic, whether it's on a, on a uh, in a painting or in a story. Uh, I find truly remarkable because they're they're making something out of absolutely nothing. They're starting with nothing, and it, it just comes from their imaginations. So that's why I wanted the the character to be an artist because she was special. And then as far as Schnabel goes. The, the only thing I borrowed from Schnabel was his name, because uh, what I really was thinking about when I wrote this was um, Picasso, and he was just too old for my storyline. So Picasso, when he went from his, his blue period, he, it was like 1901. And I was thinking about Picasso's blue paintings, and one of them, which is a portrait of Suzanne Bloch, which, which is very blue and black and gray and, and her face is very pale. So it looked to me like something you would see in the moonlight. And, and that, that sort of started the whole thing going. Nice, nice. Now, I also want to know the story behind the deceased artist. Um, you know, cause some stories, some novels, you know, the deceased, um, they could be like a, a bad person and they, you know, someone murders them. Your deceased artist is not a bad person. Okay. No. And uh, so I want to know, because it's, you write in there that the deceased artist feeds the neighbor children pixie pillows and nectar. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> yeah, well, actually, that came out of uh, when my husband and I first, um, well, we lived in BC and we lived in Courtney, BC at the end of a cul-de-sac. And the cul-de-sac, when it was being developed, the, the developer with the bulldozer started at one end and kept mowing and pushing the trees and the debris into the lots next to them. So they went through the first lot, the second lot, the third lot, which we eventually bought the house on, and then the fourth lot. And it was sitting in a big stack on the fourth lot. And then the people who came in there and built their house built it. And they left this gigantic stack of dead trees and whatnot in the backyard. And over time, it just got covered with vines and everything else. And my thinking was, as I was thinking of the story, what would the artist do? She's bright, she's competent, she, she's able to take care of herself. What would she do when the neighbors are saying, that is an eyesore, get rid of it? And so since she's such an outgoing person, she invites the children in the neighborhood to come and play in her backyard all through the summer. And she'll spray them with uh, the water holes and whatnot. And then just to get them out the door and off back to their home, she'll give them the, um, the well, after the fairy forest experience, she'll give them the pixie pillows, which are marshmallows, and she'll give them the, the nectar, which is the lemonade. And it was just a way of sort of adding something to her character. She was creative. You and I'd walk out there and say, okay, it's time to go home. She walked out there and said, "Here, it's time for your pixie pillows and nectar. And then they go home. I love it. Pixie pillows. Okay. <laughs> 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 okay. So this leads me into our first, op- what I call open mic discussion. As I, I've kind of briefly mentioned, in some mysteries that you have the deceased, some are victims of foul play. How much character development did all of you do for your deceased, given you're writing a short story compared to a novel? So Susan, let's just, Susan, Jane, let's just start off with you and then we can maybe go around. Okay, well, I'm a newbie at it. So I I took a bit of a shortcut. I was thinking that if she's an artist, of course, you already have a preconceived notion of what an artist is like. And then I just tried to embellish on that a bit to uh, take the story further. So not only was she an artist, but she was a loving mother who was trying to take care of her her children in the future. Um, You know, and and she was unconventional. So that fit the the story in a quick way. Okay. 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 Karen, Karen, you, Abramson, you have a totally different opposite victim. Mm -hmm. I have a bread, a bread delivery or bread truck delivery driver. (laughs) <laughs> in my story is the is the murder victim and uh, he's actually very loosely based on a person I knew once years ago and uh, who was uh, we call him a bit of a rounder so he always lived at the edge of the law and um, had a bad habit of losing bread off the back of his <laughs> So anyway, so that's how I, I had my my back my backstory for this fellow. Yeah. Please, uh, Judy, I'm thinking of your story. Well, first, I'd like to comment on Karen's because I'd like to say Karen's protagonist is a, a young girl, 14, 15 years old. And um, it's been a long time since I was 14 or 15. And um, all my nieces are like hitting 30 now. But um, my beta reader has a 15-year-old girl. And so I said, 
can you read this and tell me, does it sound like a 15 year old girl would say? And she was, and she was like, Oh my God, this is such a great story. You've got it. You've got to put it in. Um, so the, the voice was so authentic, right? I thought it was, but again, because I'm so far removed from <laughs> that time, not really, I wasn't really hundred percent sure. So it was good to have that um, because it was one of my first picks, but I wasn't sure about, it was one of the ones where I was like, I'm not sure about the voice, right? So um, that would be something to just say about that one. Um, so I'll let somebody else go because it's not all about me. Maybe maybe uh, Madeline can talk about her clever story. Yeah, thanks, Judy. Um, yeah, I don't, there's not exactly a murder, but there are a lot of people under threat in my story. And I think really my apartment building's a character in the story, Le Broadmoor. Because it's the it's called the Moon God of Broadmoor, and Broadmoor are these old apartment buildings, and it it's the first apartment building I lived in when I moved to Toronto, which is like forty years ago. <laughs> it's still there, and it's I think if you lived in Toronto, you know there's these U-shaped sort of brick buildings that are, and that this particular building it's actually on Deer Park Crescent. I don't know if anybody knows that part of Toronto, but it's still there. And the two halves don't join together. It's, it's a very odd sort of thing. And um, I think in the in the story, that gave me the inspiration. And I think if you're living in Toronto now, you just see there's so much building going on and we don't take care of our heritage at all. There's so many wonderful buildings that are lost. And um, as a person who loves history, I really find that very difficult to take. And nobody, and nobody really thinks about the people who really enjoy lives in these apartment buildings that have very large, they're often very much larger than the cubby holes that they want to put you into today. Um, I think one of the worst things I heard about Toronto was in some of these um, crystal blades, as I call them in the story, they don't even have room for an oven. You're supposed to microwave everything. Like, I mean, how sad is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's really the, the kind of the, the victim in in my in my story. Yeah, yeah, I I can see it. Yeah, mm. anyone else? Elizabeth, Susan Daly, thinking about your victims and your story. I oh, go ahead, Susan. Oh, okay, Susan here. Well, um, I don't have a murder in this story, but uh, in most of my stories, I have to make sure there's a compelling reason for someone to want to kill them. Um, you know, right or wrong. The reader has to feel like, yeah, somebody got their just desserts, or sometimes I just have them the uh, the perpetrator exact a, a fitting revenge. The more fitting, the better. So yeah, I put a lot of work into developing the victims so that it all fits when when it all comes down. Okay, okay. and mine was easy. It was just a composite of the three most annoying high school principals I'd ever worked with. <laughs> wonderful how we can get even with people I know it's great it's great <laughs> yeah I had a few it was thank you Judy for giving me an opportunity <laughs> all right well Karen Abramson it's good to see you again good to see you too Joanna so our listeners know KL Karen Abramson is a well-traveled writer who has explored cultures and countries around the world in her fiction. She is the author of literary, romantic, and fantasy fiction, including the highly regarded 
cartographer fantasy series, and three mystery series. She lives on the west coast of BC with eagles, bears, and orcas for neighbors. Karen is a member of Sisters in Crime National and Canada West chapter and the Oregon Writers Network. And she currently has a short story under contract for a forthcoming issue of Ellery Queen magazine. Whoa. Don't we all know that's like the, oh. the best. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've stopped dancing, but I'm still really happy. <laughs> now, Karen, your story and Judy mentioned this. So your story is chicken coops and bread pudding. Your heroine, Grace Jones, she's smart and she's a smart teenager. You write the dialogue of the, a teenager so well, all right, I, uh, so well. Um, now, this is the second story of yours that I've read that features a female protagonist who is a teenager. So when you were writing Grace Rose's dialogue, are you in that fevered moment of writing, trying to get the words down fast enough? Um, or are you in that character? Like, like we're always in the character, but what I'm meaning is her speech was so authentic. So I just, I want to know whether being in that character, you're just, you're writing her speech um, or else you're just trying to get it down fast enough. And then you go back and look at it and think, okay, how do I make this more of a teenager's dialogue? This was how it came out of my hands. Wow. Yeah, I, I made very few changes on this story at all um, after, I, after I wrote the first draft. I did have a first reader go through it and, uh, you know, help me tighten it up a little bit. But, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been trying to work on voice. That, that has always been my my challenge I, I want to get it better and I'm so thrilled that uh, Judy liked the the voice in this story um, and I I mean I worked on it I, I've been sort of working on young people's voice for a while and so you read the, the last one and I thought I was getting closer to it with that one but this one it just came so it was a really wonderful experience for me to to have it come through my fingers so the the boys in the basement did their job thankfully this time out <laughs> because there's even the scene where she's on the school bus and the the fr the friend just kind of I've been there I had to take the school bus to school where you know she, someone's having a conversation and then someone else turns around and I thought yeah I, I've been there you know so, yeah. yeah so with every story I highlight um, narrative or dialogue um, I want to ask each of you about um, now Karen with your story your news of the murder so this is this is the quote here sorry so in your story Karen News of the murder of a man none of the kids liked traveled through the school faster and with more embellishments than a high school rodeo queen on her barrel racer. <laughs> I loved that visual. So can you explain to us and me who's lived on the island for so long what a high school rodeo queen is doing on a barrel racer? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Williams Lake is cowboy country, and uh, I, I moved up to Williams Lake um, 
out of straight out of university and having lived on the coast for a while. And so it was my first experience with rodeo, rodeo country and cowboy country. Um, and the high school rodeo queen is a very big deal when they, you know, and, and the, in, um, uh, the Williams Lake Stampede, which is the big rodeo, um, they always have competitions for barrel racing. And actually, barrel racing is really, um, uh, I mean, there's a pro professional barrel racer circuit in North America for rodeos. Um, and what it is, is uh, you have three barrels set up in a triangle and uh, the barrel racers are riding their horse as fast as they can, going down and around each barrel. And it's a timed event. So that's what is barrel racing is, but the um, the embellishments part of it of that that quote is the the <laughs> the uh, I was thinking about it this morning. I mean, high school rodeo queens and their princesses are usually quite tarted up, and their horses are quite tarted up. They have a lot of silver embellishments on their saddles and the bridles and everything else. And uh, um, so, yeah, I mean, in in her world, that would be a very appropriate way to think about it in terms of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. It was very, very good, very good. So thinking about dialogue here um, and writing narrative, do either of you feel, opening it up to all of you, that um, you have a, as you feel stronger in writing dialogue or do you feel stronger writing narrative? I interviewed Shoshana Friedman um, two podcasts ago, and I had complimented her on this narrative she had written. And she said, thank you. I worked on that. And she felt that dialogue came just much more naturally to her. Do either of you have a preference? I like writing dialogue. For me, dialogue moves the story forward. Okay. Um, and, and it's the easy for me to write. And I think as most writers, uh, we're great eavesdroppers of, on conversations, whether, you know, I've never, I've yet to sit alone in a, a Timmy's and not eavesdropped on the conversations around me. Right. I mean, because that, you get such great ideas. And so that's how you develop authentic um, dialogue as well. Right. Is, um, is, is by eavesdropping. So I, I love doing dialogue and I, I have to be careful not to just make my whole story. He said, she said, okay. okay. Uh, I, I think, I think I was sort of the opposite is I, I always preferred the narrative to the dialogue and I've worked really hard on developing dialogue over the years. And so um, now I'm finding that I keep going back and I find like, like uh, Judy is talking about that. Okay. Better add some more narrative in here. <laughs> so, yeah. Actually, the first comment somebody made on something I wrote was it, uh, it was like a play. <laughs> it was all dialogue, right? And you should fill things in in between. So uh, I, I love writing narrative, but it, it takes a lot of care and a lot of craft. The dialogue comes really easily. What I do find, though, with dialogue, because it comes so easily, takes a lot more trimming afterwards because mm -hmm. I'll tend to rattle on and then realize it can be said in half the amount of space, you know. But uh, yeah, so I would agree with the writer you interviewed. That's how it is for me. Okay. Susan Daly? Uh, yeah, well, I, I really, I, I think I can sort of balance between the two. With, with narrative, I tend to, most of my stories are deep into someone's point of view or in first 
or even in first person. So the narrative is like everything they're observing and feeling. But I have a lot of fun with dialogue, especially if I can get the characters who have opposing histories and opposing values and just have them go head to head. Um, one of the first stories I had published in um, the whole shebang too, from the Toronto from Canadian Sisters in Crime, was um, I had that my two antagonists were a shall be named unnamed mayor of Toronto, um, <laughs> um, based on nobody in particular, and a very famous Canadian iconic writer, also no one in particular, and the two their values were so far apart yes. that they just couldn't stop going head to head with each other. And so the dialogue, the dialogue wrote itself. Yeah, okay. Uh, ladies, anyone else? Yes, Natalie. I, I, yeah, I, I'm with Karen. I tend to fall back into narrative, but I think it's, I think readers enjoy dialogue a lot more. So in, in more recent work, I've really tried to work on my dialogue and, and I agree with Susan. It's wonderful if you could get two antagonists together because then I really believe the story comes alive. And uh, so that's what I've been working on more recently is to work more on the dialogue. And, and you can really capture a lot of people's uh, background and character working on dialogue if you can get into the rhythm of their language. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so actually being the newbie to this group, uh, I've, I find this really fascinating and interesting, the way you're able to talk about the balance between people who can work on dialogue quite easily and needing to work on their narrative to, to help beef that up and vice versa. I found it easier to do the dialogue and a lot harder to do the narrative, um, partly because I needed to focus on what was going on around the character. And so I found that if I wasn't careful, it, it did look like a play. He said, she said, he said, she said. And I'm thinking, where is this person situated? What are they looking at? You know, is that a bird flying by or are they just, like, what's happening around them? Because it can be very narrow otherwise. Yeah. But um, I, I actually just to add to a point, when, when I did talk to Beverly McLaughlin, one thing she said was that she found dialogue very easy to do. And she thought it came naturally to some people. Just put that in there. Yeah. Okay. I, I just like to comment on Susan's story to say that, um, I like first I had no idea it was your first fiction publication credit. I'm going to put that in. Um, oh, thank you. Because um, it's it's very exciting. I have one other author that's his, his first, and I, I, like part of this is trying to, you know, bring new voices out there. But um, that being said, like you have two sisters in there, and um, it's very easy, especially for a newbie, to. Um, info dump in the dialogue, you know, like to say, well, you know, um, mother's ex-husband was such and such. Well, of course she would know, they're sisters, right? <laughs> you didn't do that. And, and like, you didn't do the info dump, right? So that, and that is something that is a real pitfall in dialogue for people that aren't good at doing it is that they, they try to move the story forward and they try to dump a whole lot of information into the dialogue that, the both people would know about, right? Like your sisters, you, of course you're gonna know what your mother was up to or whatever. You didn't do that. So I think that's, it's quite commendable that you that you've Thank you, thank you very much. Well, I find when I write, especially if it's something new, okay? Uh, because of working full time and literally each 30 minutes of your life, almost 15 minutes of your life is being accounted for, um, that is the first thing I will write is dialogue. I'll get the dialogue down and then I'll go back after 
and look at, okay, where are they? You know, are they inside? Are they outside? Are they in the cafe? You know, what are they doing? You know, and, and sometimes that scene will come with the dialogue, but because right now, because of time restraints, that's what I'm doing first. It's the dialogue. Yeah. Okay. That was neat. Okay. We're going to move to Elizabeth Elwood. Thanks Welcome. for having me here. It's really great the way you set this up. Well, now that Ozzy's trying not to steal the spotlight, right? <laughs> we're on a roll. Okay. So, all right. I read your story before I read your bio. So when I read that you were a former high school English and drama teacher, I went, aha, okay, this, this makes sense. So our listeners know Elizabeth Elwood has spent many years performing with the Lower Mainland music and theater groups and singing with the Vancouver Opera Chorus. Having turned her talents to writing and design, she created 20 marionette musicals for Elwoodettes, marionettes, and has written four places that have entertained audiences in both Canada and the U.S. She is the author of six books in the, now am I saying this right? Beery, yeah. Beery? Okay. Beery. Okay. The Beery? Yeah, Beery. Beery yeah. Mystery Series. Passing in and out, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Her short stories have been featured in Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine and many more. Elizabeth is a member of the Crime Writers of Canada, Sisters in Crime National, and Canada West Chapter. Elizabeth, congratulations on being a Derringer Award nominee. Thank you. Yeah, that was exciting. That's the first time I've been nominated for a writing award, so. Well, the Sisters in Crime, I was wondering why my emails, I was, and I'm like, what's up, what's up, what's up? And then I saw that, so congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Now, your story is Ill Met by Moonlight, Proud Miss Domas. Your protagonist is a female drama teacher, Ms. Hawthorne, and she is in preparations with her drama students to produce A Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, I was wondering if this story idea was based off of any one of your own productions. Not Midsummer Night's Dream. I, I never actually directed that one. I've directed lots of others. Um, the reason I chose that was because the minute I read Moonlight and Misadventure, I thought ill met by Moonlight, right? To, to me, Midsummer Night's Dream is the epitome of Moonlight and Misadventure. Um, and actually, uh, when I was in high school before, when I was much too shy to join drama in those days, but my brother was in an excerpt, the very excerpt I have in the story, uh, that our high school actually did that uh, scene. But um, but as I say, the reason I, I ended up with Midsummer Night's Dream was because of the, t the quote, right? The quote, ill met by moonlight, uh, and then... To me, uh, right away, that took me to play Midsummer Night's Dream, and that took me to theater, right? So I was going to write a theatrical story, and I suddenly, you know, I thought back, you know, it could have been some of my other stage experiences, but then I thought, you know, I've never written one that encompasses my school, my drama school experience, and uh, so it just seemed the perfect fit, and that's how that evolved. Well, it was neat because it took me back to a memory. And um, 
So in your story, the school principal feels Shakespeare is ir irrelevant with today's students um, and an improv program so they can explore their emotions is much better. Well, I'm sorry, as a teenager, I did not want to explore any of my emotions, okay? <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> I was just trying to get a grip on life, right? You know, yeah. so I had a few thoughts and I remember in grade seven, I had a grade seven teacher and he loved Gilbert and Sullivan Productions, loved them. And as, you know, as we went through public school, you know, grade five, grade six, every year he put on a production. And I remember he produced the Pirates of Penzance. Now, of course, I didn't think about this then, but the beauty of him putting on those productions was that it didn't matter whether you came from, I'll just say like the, the not so nice area of where we lived or whether you lived in the expensive area of where you lived, it was whether you fit the part for the production. And it was on that stage where even if I was just, I, I think I was a Roman soldier, okay, in, in, you know, in makeup in the boys chorus because I couldn't sing high. And it didn't matter whether your role was small or whether you had the lead, um, the students pulled together and you forgot about all that stuff, you know? And like I say, I didn't think of this as a kid, you know? So I wanted to know what made you decide to tackle um, the, this adversity of, of the, two, the, the two trains of thought with the drama teacher wanting to put on her production and what the principal wants her to do? Really, simply because I had a principal who came in. He was new, new to the school, and he came in to my class and saw what we were doing, which had been loved by my previous administrators. And and posed that very question that Miss Dolmas, you know, you know, shouldn't you be doing more improv, you know, letting uh, them get their emotions out, etc. Uh, reality is, my little team, and they were a team. You're right about that. That's the lovely thing. I had kids who were, you know, in modified classes and not doing well in other areas of school, but then they could shine, you know, in in drama. And so it was a great leveler because it was a team. And, um, you know, so uh, he came in now, unlike Miss Dolmas, uh, he turned around very quickly and became a very enthusiastic supporter of what was going on. But, um, uh, and he came, you know, he came in with ideas that were uh, he, like, this is junior high, you know, and you know what grade eight to 10 are like. And uh, he, he called the very first assembly and said he wanted to get a sense of school team spirit. And so everybody had to raise their right hand together and lower it. Well, you can imagine that approach with a gym, gymnasium full of grade eight, nines and tens. <laughs> you know, so he very soon changed his tune and realized that the school tone comes from having a good drama club, a good teams, you know, good sports teams, a good music program. You know, the, the specifics is what creates the, the good school tone and makes the kids happy. So he he became a supporter. I didn't have to drop a fresnel on his head, <laughs> like in the story. But um, yeah, so that that really was the confrontation that um, you know created having the theme. And I also did have a student that I had to 
uh, she lost her part because after numerous warnings, she missed an important rehearsal and that was that. And she not only complained, her parents complained. And then because the administration of the time just told them, no, you know, she it's fair consequence. She actually went to the school board and somebody told me later the parents went to a talk show. So I don't know what 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 happened out of that. But but it, again, in that case, it wasn't like my story. I had support from the administration and the board and they, you know, they realised that she had brought it on herself and pushed our patients to the limit, you know. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so I was drawing on real experiences when I was a drama teacher and except I was making the, how they evolved a little more different. And, and really, um, Sadly, I think some a lot of it has turned around. I mean, Hugh and I retired long since, but um, in the last year my husband was teaching, um, he had an incident where, because he was sponsoring, you know how you sponsor teams, and he was sponsoring a girls' basketball team, and there were some goofy teenage boys whacking around with a ball in the stands and harassing the girls, so he just confiscated their basketball and said come on guys out right well he got called to the office he had a principal like Miss Dolmas and and she wanted him to apologize to these kids for taking their basketball and kicking them out and of course Hugh being Hugh said you apologize to them and walked out <laughs> but you know it, it, it was a shame to see that you know uh, but hopefully that, that was an exception not the rule you know um so, yeah, so, you know, these were issues that, that we dealt with. The same thing with the uh, mention of the drama room that got dismantled and filed the grievance and had the, parent, the kids to get their parents go to the school board. That really happened. Okay. And I got my room back. Yeah, so, uh, so I was just drawing on all those school experiences. And thank you, Judy, for giving me the opportunity <laughs> to get them out, right? need to be able to walk about write about that excellent excellent okay so we're going to move over now to mh madeline callway all right madeline you have short crime your short crime fiction has been published in many anthologies and magazines your stories and novellas have won and have been shortlisted for several awards including the bonnie peaked the Crime Writers of Canada, Arthur Ellis Award, and The Derringer. Your debut novel, Windigo Fire, was shortlisted for the debut dagger and the Arthur Ellis Award for Best Unpublished and Best First Novel. In 2013, Madeline co-founded the Mesdames of Mayhem, a collective of Canadian crime writers whose work is showcased in their four anthologies. The Mesdames are also the subject of a CBC documentary by director Kat Mills. Madeline is a member of the Crime Writers of Canada, Sisters in Crime National, and Toronto Chapter, the short Mystery Fiction Society, and the Writers Union of Canada. Hello, Madeline. Hi, thank you so much for doing this, Joanna, and it, it's just a real privilege to be here. I'm very excited to be um, in Judy's new anthology. I can't wait to read all the stories. They all sound amazing. They are. They are. And, and it was like, I I mean it. it. It's 
there is a cadence. When I was reading these, I thought, just Moonlight Sonata or, you know, (laughs) so, okay. Now your story is the moon god of Broadmoor. And again, I had an instant connection because I used to work in a police complaints office. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of wish I could have met a Thoth, you know, god of the moon, you know. Um, Instead, sadly, I was, I dealt with, um, I don't want to say the word dealt with. I gave some assistance, answered some questions for a lady who believed that the shadow people were watching. (laughs) So I am curious. You mentioned about the apartment building being a victim. What was the inspiration for your story? Well, um, I have two answers to that question. One was, um, you know, sometimes you read a story or you hear a story and it stays with you forever. And many, many years ago, I think I was still in university. I read this story about a man who believed he was a superhero. He lived in New York City and he was very eccentric and he would dress, wear his costume all the time. And he would run around the neighborhood doing good deeds. He would run across the rooftops and he had a very tragic end. And it always stuck with me. Now, this was years before, you know, cosplay and that is now quite socially accepted. You know, my own daughter makes elaborate costumes to be in, you know, with a fan expo and and that. But this person was, he totally believed he was something else. He was another persona. You know, it's, it's, it's a creative act. A lot of actors do, a lot of performers do. But it was more to him than that. And I always wanted to use that. And um, when I uh, when Judy put the call out, I, I had this idea I'd like to use it. And then I thought the moon god. And then I read about Thoth, the moon god of Egypt. And it was just like gold. I thought this is perfect fit. This is perfect. Sometimes you get a gift like that. Yeah, yeah. The other part of your question is that I worked in public health for a long time, <laughs> about oh, 10 wow. years. So as you can imagine what's going on right now, I never thought I'd see this in my lifetime. But anyway, um, public health in those days was really the court of last resort. So when people get really angry with government, you know, they would go and they would complain to various departments. And then eventually they didn't get any joy out of the Ministry of Environment or the Ministry of Labor. They would say it was a health hazard. And so we ended up with a lot of really very odd people. Since I was the junior person in the office, it was my job to listen to them. Like, and you could be on, and the, the problem is they could really fool you because they'd be very articulate. Yeah. And then half an hour later, you realize that they're telling you the Russians are irradiating their food. <laughs> the mold in their apartment is taking over their lives. And, you know, anybody, well, I mean, you worked in, in the complaints yeah. department. But you know anything, if you worked in the civil service, you realize it's comedy gold. I mean, it's a gold mine. It's the mother load. You can just, I think, I think the people who wrote Yes Minister, remember that show like a long time ago? He said he didn't have to make it up. He just transcribed his experiences. Yeah. And and I often do that myself. And people don't believe it. Yeah. True. Very true. Yeah. Now, your heroine, Liz. She's a public health inspector, and I can relate to what she is going through. Um, there's the scene where she receives this piece of paper, 
And it was a flashback for me. I remember my coworker, my good friend, Cindy, we received a complaint in the mail and she just looked at it and she said, don't touch the envelope. I'm getting my gloves. And she put on her latex gloves and opened, like she says, Joanna, you're not touching that envelope. Thinking of your story. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, I can so relate to poor Liz. Now you have this wonderful character, Thoth, God of the moon. Uh, Thoth is a powerful character and I love his rationales behind his actions. Okay. And did you ever find yourself having to keep him in check so he wouldn't take over the story? Because the story is, you know, the title, The Moon God of Broadmoor. So do you have, did you find that you almost like had to pull the reins on, in, on him a bit? So he, no? No, I didn't. Um, I think it was because we don't actually ever see from inside Stanley thought we don't actually see from we see him as a reflection it's really how other people react to him he's he's quite comfortable in his persona and but it's almost like the moon itself he's a reflection you you see him reflection you see the way liz sees him you see the way mr richard the villain sees him you see the way mrs jack the uh, superintendent um, of the apartment who's very accepting sees him and so I, I felt, no, I didn't have any trouble. I had a lot of fun writing him though, I must say, you know, it was, it came, it was one of those gifts. I mean, as writers, we know that sometimes a story will come very easily to you. And I think when a story comes very easily and it flows easily, that means you've got a good one. Yeah. And you know, this is gonna work. I think, speaking for myself, the ones that I really have to work out, there's something, there's some fundamentally, they don't, they don't work quite as well. Yeah. If you have to work at it really hard, not as well but this one was a joy to write it really was and you know something that I feel myself you know about the overdevelopment of Toronto is sort of that that probably comes through in the story and I'm speaking through thought that way okay okay well you've mentioned about some stories that seem to be more work how many of us have heard that if you're having issues with your story look at your characters right have we have did anyone no one has I only one okay well I actually like when people say they have writer's block I I don't buy into writer's block okay. I, I say it's your <clears throat> subconscious telling you hey you're you're doing something stupid here <laughs> it's time to it's time to change directions right because I, I agree with you I agree with you it's our yeah. subconscious saying you are going down the wrong path. Save yourself some heartache and <laughs> garbage, and and look at where you are and go back to that. And so I've I've it's never let me down. If I feel blocked, it's because it's my subconscious saying, Judy, you you know you're you're going off on a tangent. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. All right. So opening it up to everyone, have you ever written a character? That is not your main character, not your hero, not your heroine. As you said, Judy, that could that could have taken your story in a different direction. And what did you do? Um, did you write another book, another series, another stories? Did you kind of rein this character in? Yeah, just basically elaborating on what Judy said. Nobody? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Susan Healy, yes. Okay, well, I did uh, not not in my short stories. Um, I, I have a, a past history of 
of writing unpublished romance novels, among other things, which I'm not going to get into here. And I, I had this secondary character in this one story that in this one book that she was such a pain and and I really had a lot of fun making her into a real pain. And she brought grief to um, all the people in the book. And she was finally fired in the end. But I kept thinking, but I kind of like her. And I'd like to give her somebody of her, somebody who could, you know, kind of turn her life around. And, and then I realized I had another character in the story who was her total opposite. And I said, okay, let's give these two their own story. And I had so much fun bringing those two together. Sadly, they've never seen the light of day except on my computer. Okay. Okay. Karen, I saw your I, your Hollywood square light up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't think I've ever written a, a, a story where the character has has taken off, taken over, or tried to take over. But uh, I've certainly, I know, with one of my one of my uh, American Geological uh, Survey fantasy stories, um, I have I had a subsidiary character, a best friend of the main character, that I really planned to write a series of novellas featuring her, but I've just not gotten around to it. There's too little time, too many characters, too little time. Okay. But, uh, yeah. yeah. I, interesting what Susan just said. I, I've never had a character that takes the story elsewhere, but thinking about writing awful characters, I had in my last book a story with someone who was so outrageous and politically incorrect and just a real pain to everybody else in the family and totally self-entitled to be really awful. And I thought, can I really get away with writing this character. Um, but when um, actually Jan de Grasse, you know, Jan uh, Karen, um, she wrote up the book and made the comment, she really hoped that character would appear in a future book. So I thought, well, that's interesting. I guess everybody loves somebody totally bad, right? Mm -hmm. They're not in real life, but we love we love them on on paper, right? They're, they're interested <laughs> in to write about. So, so actually on the manuscript I've been working on during COVID, uh, she actually has become, taken a much bigger part than some of the other characters that are part of the regular series. Good, good. Well, we're gonna move on. And now for our listeners, Judy Pans Shalak, who organized and created this anthology and did all the behind the scenes work with spreadsheets. Judy, I, oh God, as soon as you said spreadsheets, I'm thinking Excel and I'm just like, oh, <laughs> So Judy Penn-Shalak is a former journalist and magazine editor and the author of two mystery series, The Glass Dolphin Mysteries and The Marketville Mysteries. Her short crime fiction appears in several collections including The Best Laid Plans and Heartbreaks and Half-Truths, which she also edited. Judy is a member of Sisters in Crime National, Toronto, and Guppy Chapter Chapters. The, she's a member of the International Thriller Writers, the Short Mystery Fiction Society, and she is the chair of the Crime Writers of Canada. Judy, you wrote the short story, Strawberry Moon. The reader feels sympathy for your heroine. All this lady wants to do is see the strawberry moon. It happens every 47 years. And I love it because 
you know, she's rationalizing things to herself. And she's like, it happens every 47 years, just every 47 years, you know, and through the heroine's inner dialogue, you bring about sympathy for her. Plus the fact that she has to go through border security, which actually just, I have not had good experiences. So I've got to ask, I know how I get going through border security. How about you? And was that any, um, is that what you drew upon with your story? Yeah. So this is sort of like Madeline uh, was saying it, this was kind of something that actually happened. So our place up North is um, the, near Sault Ste. Marie. And so there's Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan and Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Um, and, but the Ontario side, although Superior is huge, we don't see freighters. And I've never seen a freighter in my life. Um, and so my husband said, oh, you know, we can go over to Sioux, Michigan and we can see the freighters. So why don't we do that? That'll be a fun thing to do. So off we go, of course, like being total idiots, we don't check to see if there's gonna be any freighters that day. We just think, well, so we're, we're waiting in line and we finally get to the customs guard. And the first thing he says to my husband is lose the shades because my husband's wearing sunglasses, right? So I have that line in the, the book as the first thing that guard says is lose the shades. So Mike loses the shades and then we hand over our passports and he says to um, us, purpose of your visit, and Mike said, we want to see the freighters. <laughs> and he goes, where's, goes, where's Alliston? And Mike said, well, it's near Toronto. And he said, because, you know, up there, people don't know, like, the small towns, right? He goes, uh, kind of a long way to come and see freighters. Like, how Toronto's like 10-hour drive, right? <laughs> long way to see freighters. You don't have any freighters in Lake Ontario? <laughs> and Mike's like, Jesus, I don't know. Like, <laughs> just wanted to see the freaking freighters right so, anyway so of course that was gonna be a story like there's just no way around it that was gonna be a story. so really the opening scenes to the story are really based on on fact um and then the strawberry moon there is strawberry moon like they they're i'm quite fascinated with the moon i think it's because i'm a cancerian maybe um but the um there is a strawberry moon like every June, it's not the old, but this particular strawberry moon happened in like 2017 or 18, whenever the story first came to me. And uh, <clears throat> there's something special about it, which is why she, and it's not gonna happen again for 47 years. So that's that, but um, anybody that's sort of familiar with sort of the indigenous way of looking at moon, they have like the beaver moon and the, you know, these different moons, you know, the harvest moon and all these moons mean, mean something. Um, so in June, the strawberry moon, because that's when the strawberry are growing. Right. So anyway, so that was it was kind of fun to write because, um, you know, and then another thing that had happened when I was when I was up there is inevitably every year somebody more than usually one, but at least one person will will go out on Superior in a little, you know, fishing boat and um, they'll they'll die because Superior is like flat one minute and the next minute there's 10 feet waves and it goes like that. There's no warning. There's just boom, there it is. You're in 10 feet waves. And so there's always like somebody that's, um, you know, they don't find them for so many days or their body washes up on shore or they find the boat, they never find the body, et cetera, et cetera. So um, having that kind of a, a story to draw from on top of my, grumpy border guard I, I was able to marry those two ideas and it was just it was just good fun 
Good. Yeah. Again, so many of these brought on my own remembering personal experiences going through security. Yeah. Yeah, they can be pretty. My favorite experience was <clears throat> we were going down to Florida. We're driving down to Florida and um, we were going to, we had rented a house there. My husband was doing an Ironman down there and we had rented a house and we had brought our, our dog who was at a golden retriever and, and he was a, about a year and a half old and the, a gentle soul. Anyway, he was sort of in the back of the vehicle and the guard was like, you know, looking at it, he goes, is your dog vicious? And he got up with his little stuffed toy in his mouth. <laughs> Like, yeah, no, not really. <laughs> but just the, sometimes the way they, they ask you things, they do make you nervous, right? And like, I think you have nothing to hide, and yet you, you seem shifty somehow, yeah. right? Because you feel like, you know, so. Yeah. But I remember that, that particular day with that guard. Mm-hmm. We really did. And the sad story there was when we got across the border, finally, um, the... Um, there were no freighters that day. They had there had been twenty five the day before, <laughs> but none that day. And they said, "Well, you got to you know, there's some channel or something you can go to see when the freighters." But we've never been back because after that, it was uh, well. There's been COVID and you know yes. whatever. I'm not in a rush to get back to the United States, so <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I still haven't seen a freighter. <laughs> okay, okay. Now your story is one of the shortest. Yeah, there's logic, there's empathy, there's suspense, and I I remember when um, you were on our pre my the previous podcast, we talked about being pantser or plotter. Now maybe it's because I'm a bit of a pantser. I'm wondering how did you plot that story because it was just like boom, boom, boom. You had it all in there. Well, it's funny because I am a pantser when I'm writing novels because I feel that you have the ability to kind of dipsy doodle a bit, right? With short story, I feel that you do, I have to plot them. Um, I've tried to plot a novel and I've been totally unsuccessful with that. But for a short story, I feel like I, I, I need to know the beginning, the middle and the end. I may not need, you know exactly how they all connect, but I really need a, a firm structure before I go in there. So with this one, I knew from the beginning because of an experience, I knew how I wanted it to end. And I knew what the middle had to be. So it was just connecting the dots, basically. So uh, for me, short story, I don't know what the rest of you are like. Um, Madeline also writes novel. And I know, I think uh, Karen does, Elizabeth. Yeah, so whoever writes novels um, can speak to whether they structure them differently. Um, But for me personally, I pants my way through novels and I plot short stories. Hmm. Anyone else? I'm I'm a straight pantser these days. Okay. Yeah, I sit down um, and I don't um, I, I don't think with this story I knew where it was going. I just had the image of the beginning, and that's where I started. Total pantser, <laughs> uh, but often you know the the risk is that you end up with a mess. But that's when the editing comes in. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm just, it's Susan uh, Jane, I'm just starting novel writing as well. And what I'm, with my legal background, I, I want to have a bit more structure, but I understand where Karen and Madeline um, and others are coming from. And that if you have too much structure, you're kind of trapped and it can be stultifying. So it, I'm just trying to find that balance right now. The best advice I ever got from somebody was, 
uh, and I can't even remember who gave it to me, sadly, is tell the stories if you're telling the story to a friend over coffee. So, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And you wouldn't believe what happened next because in so doing, you even though you're pantsing your way through, you're, and you're, and you know, you're embellishing it so that it seems a bit more fun when you're telling the story. You know, maybe you add a little bit more cranky or whatever. <laughs> you have your dog come in and say hi. Um, yeah, so I, that was to me such great advice. Just tell the story to yourself or, or to a friend over coffee and write it that way. And it, to me, it all flows. So even if you are a, a plotter, so to speak, you still have that looseness of being able to tell the story. Okay. Good advice. Yeah, it's true. If, if I want a story to be short, I have to plan it. If I'm not worried about it getting longer, then I just start and follow the flow. Okay. Same thing. But it, it, it affects the length. If I don't plan it, I end up with a long story. I end up with a novella or get into a novel. Okay. Okay. I saw Karen Aberson and Susan Daly's square. Uh I was just going to say that, um, I mean, you can plot out a story, but you also have to let the story tell itself too. So mm -hmm. I always think, I, I used to plot everything really closely. And then I found that uh, you know, I'd plot it and then about 50% of the way through, and then it became 30% or 40% and then 30%. I, the story would start to go in its own direction and developed its own energy. And I didn't need the plot anymore because okay. it just came. And so just give you permission to vary from what you've got to plot it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Susan Daly? Well, that pretty much what Karen said, yeah, you know, you can you can plot, but then go off in all directions, which I, I find I'm I, I have to start as a plotter usually. And um I've always said, well, I can't write a short story until I have a theme and a deadline. Uh that works like a charm sometimes. Oh yes. <laughs> And, uh, but then, and I then I come up with say, okay, what's the central focus incident of this short story? Such as you know, kidnapping the Duke of Edinburgh, um, and then then I go from there, and it can go in all kinds of directions. Especially when I start doing research, such as with yeah. this one, there's lots to research, lots of research available, so I can say, oh. And the Leafs were playing the Blackhawks that night. I love that. <laughs> I love the whole, I don't love that Maple Leaf thing. And the fact that they were, you know, worried about like, will the Leafs make it again? Yeah, you know, to the Stanley Cup. Well, you know, anybody from Toronto will be able to tell you that that is a very. Yeah, it's very song. sad. <laughs> We've all basically given up, but we keep watching. <laughs> no, hope springs eternal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, I always find that I've mentioned this before with uh, minor characters. Karen knows. Um, I always think of like if you have minor characters that really get, get my attention, it's like an extra cookie with your latte. Um, and when I find when an author also weaves in real life events mm -hmm. into their story, that's like another little cookie. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah. So, well. Ladies, authors, bringing this discussion to a close. My, thank you for joining me. And um, we had a bit. Of, I had a bit of a rough start with, like I say, his royal fuzziness wanting some. Attention. <laughs> okay, uh, all of you. I thoroughly enjoyed each one of your stories, each one of them. And um, is there anything you would like to add? 
I would just like to thank you for, for pulling this together. I'm so appreciative. Um, I really am. And uh, I will, once we have the link, I'll put it on my website. I, I have my podcast. I have the podcast I did with you on, on, on my bio page. So I have my bio and then I have enough about me. Here's more about me. <laughs> <laughs> and I link all my podcasts. So it'll be on there. And, uh, but it's just, it's wonderful because, you know, I, I've, obviously I know Susan and Madeline personally, but I don't know the rest of them personally. So it's great to see faces. Yeah. Um, it's right. It's been, it's been just great fun. Yeah. Well, and I, I would just like to say thank you, Judy, for giving me and us the opportunity. This has been terrific. And thank you, Joanne. Yeah. yeah you're welcome. Thank you both yeah. of you. It's been wonderful to be involved yeah. in this. I really appreciate it. And this is my first Zoom meeting, so it's a new experience too. <laughs> this has been a wonderful opportunity. Thank you so much, um, Joanna and Judy. And uh, I really hope to see you all in the real world. Yes. Zoom is wonderful, but it's not the same. Yeah. Well, I had. So, well, sorry, I was just going to say thank you so much, Judy and Joanna, for uh, the opportunity to be in the anthology. And Joanna, as usual, for your excellent steerage through a podcast. Well, if I don't get interrupted by a uh, like an eighteen pound miniature schnauzer, I'm usually on the game. Right? <laughs> well, I just want to add, I'm really looking forward to reading all these stories because mm -hmm. they sound so good. Yeah, and it's great to meet everyone. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely.